Hello there, I'm Brian Taylor. Down the years, you may have seen me on the telly or heard me on the wireless, but this is different. This is the Brian Taylor podcast brought to you by The Herald. Today, this is a coalition between the SNP and the Greens, and therefore the Greens cannot be in government and in opposition at the same time. There is optimism about coming out of this pandemic, building uh, better, recovering better, learning from where the cracks were, and not just papering over them, but actually it's like having a, a renewed vision for our country. And for me, I do think that's independent. So I think we can do both. I honestly would defy any of us here or anybody else in politics to say uh, that we could have gone into this and never made a mistake. Hello there, and a very warm welcome. I'm Brian Taylor, and this is my latest Herald podcast. Now, before we get going with the, the guests, first, uh, a wee plug to get all the Herald's brilliant content. Well, you should subscribe, shouldn't you? And you can get a cracking discount of 20% by mentioning the code at the, the bottom of the page. Now, that's Herald Pod 2021. It is Herald Pod 2021. Apparently, if you bung that in, you get 20%. That's a fifth off in old money from a subscription. I encourage you to do exactly that. Now, now to the, the, the show, and a rather special one, because the Scottish Parliament returns next week. It's returning fairly periodically and sporadically because of the bizarre summer we've had, but it returns in full form next week. It looks like we'll have a new green tinge to the government. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Alistair Grant, my old colleague, head of political correspondent, is here. Alistair, bring us up to speak with the latest, please, if you would. Yeah, just to, I suppose, just sum up quite quickly, we've obviously had the long-awaited publication of the planned cooperation agreement between the SNP and the Greens um, last week. So essentially see them kind of sharing a, a policy programme with two uh, the two co-leaders, Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater, becoming ministers in the Scottish government. However, it kind of stops short of being that full coalition like we've seen kind of elsewhere in the UK in the past and the kind of early years of Hollywood, of course, with Liberal Democrats and Labour. Um, but they've got kind of areas where the two parties have agreed to disagree. Mm-hmm. Those stuff like the kind of role of GDP, aviation policy, mm-hmm. uh, international relations, those kind of things. But we've also got these a number of kind of areas where they've kind of almost kind of had this this kind of shared policy program with things like you know on the environment, active transport, um, kind of child poverty measures to tackle that. Um, but we've got this agreement. We've had it confirmed today that the responsibilities of the new green ministers will be. And one will be kind of covering transport, housing, tenants' rights, and the other will be covering energy, green skills, and the natural environment. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming, I don't know if I'm right about this, but I'm assuming the latter would be Lorna Slater, considering her kind of background in green energy. That was her job before she entered politics. But one of the, the kind of final hurdles, I guess, will come this weekend when the Green members will meet up to vote on the deal on Saturday. And if it all goes through and it all goes smoothly, I guess we'll see a kind of a new chapter open up in Scottish politics. We never had. Greens in power in the UK before. It'll be interesting to see what happens next. Uh, Alistair, it will indeed. The final hurdle was a Dundee United fanzine. It meant that we hadn't won the Cup, but we've, we've actually now won the Scottish Cup twice. And, and, and Patrick Harvey, I'm delighted to say that Patrick joins us, and he's, he's beaming Lair like, like the putative, I stress, putative minister that he is, but uh, tentative potential congratulations, Mr Harvey. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. T- tell me one thing. Alistair mentioned there, GDP, gross domestic product, that's the, the measure by which the economy grows. And, and we, with a statement today from, from Kate Forbes, Finance Secretary, backing fair and sustained economic growth and stressing that unless you get that growth, you ain't got no potential to have public spending. Well, you guys, the green guys, you, you take a different view of, of that. You don't really believe in, in economic growth, as, at least as far as the, the, the GDP measure is concerned. How are you going about manage to square that in, in government? Well, thanks for uh, inviting me uh, onto the the podcast, Brian, and thanks for the uh, the slightly premature congratulations. The the matter is, as you know, still in the hands of our party members, and we we have a, a little while yet till we get a final decision. But yeah, for f- as long as the green movement has existed, there has been a, a fundamental challenge to the idea. Well, two ideas. First of all. The idea that economic growth can last forever on a planet of finite resources. We think that's wrong. Uh, And secondly, the idea that GDP, gross domestic product, Uh is an effective way of measuring how healthy and how successful our economy is. GDP is a measure of the the transactions in our economy. Effectively, it counts all of the good stuff and all of the bad stuff that's happening and just calls it stuff. And it says we just need constantly more stuff whirling around the economy. So there are many, many forms of activity 
uh, which undermine people's health and well-being, but which contribute to GDP. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot that GDP counts that's important, that's good for people, and that's good for communities. But as a metric, it doesn't distinguish between what is socially and environmentally benign and what is harmful. It's possible to measure GDP. You just described the, the flaws you see in it. But you're talking about something like well-being or wellness, and it strikes me that that is that is so inchoate and imprecise that you can't measure it in 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 the, the comparable way that you can measure gross domestic product. Well, a, a number of governments have tried, including I, I mean, I see um, Stephen Kerr nodding away with your your criticism there. The Conservative government uh, shaking his head like nobody's business on your earlier stuff as well. The Conservative <laughs> government uh, under. Under David Cameron was keen on this idea of finding other ways of measuring the economy. So it's not purely a, a left critique. It's something that uh, politicians and economists right the way across the uh, the spectrum have struggled with. Now, the Scottish government has made steps ever since they first came into power. The SNP uh, created uh, what's called the National Performance Framework. Uh, it's a little bit abstract. It's probably never going to make front page headlines but is an attempt to construct a broader set of outcomes, a broader set of measures that you're trying to achieve, and that's what you define success as. Now, we still criticize it because it has GDP growth at the pinnacle of that framework, and we still regard that as essentially unsustainable. The closer you get to environmental limits, the faster you run after environmental after economic growth, the more harm that you do. But a well-being economy is the direction that I think we're moving in. I'll bring in the others in a second, but one one question it may seem a bit trivial, but 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 in some ways it summarises the, the fact that the Greens are entering government. Will you make use if you are if endorsed at the weekend, if you are elected, uh, and, and next week by by Parliament, will, will you make use of ministerial cars as as a minister? Mate, you're the second journalist to to ask me that just today. Um, I will do exactly what I do at the moment, which is I will always try to use active travel as my first choice and public transport as my second choice. And I will use a car if I absolutely need to. Tomorrow for a, a party visit, I'm taking the, uh, the bike to Queen Street and then the train to, to, to Edinburgh. And then I'm going to get a lift for the last 15, 20 minutes of the journey because there's no public transport to the place I'm going to. So Greens want to invest in public transport so that it serves more of our communities. Uh, but we've, we always recognise that there is a place for the car, but it's in the right context and when it's necessary. So, you know, if the party agrees that we should enter government, I think you you will see us taking exactly the same approach. Use a car when it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. If there's no alternative, but you'll still see on the, me on my bike getting about Glasgow. That's the way. Well, there's, there's two of you. Get a, get a ministerial tandem. I'm joined now by by uh, uh, Stephen Kerr, who got a, got a name check earlier. Delighted also to welcome Alex Cole Hamilton. Now, I can actually genuinely congratulate him, the new leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Congratulations. Thank you, Brian. Uh, <laughs> Thanks so much. Executive Chief Whip Stephen Kerr by Cockab Stewart. Delighted to welcome her to the SNP MSP for Glasgow, Kelvin, and by Labour MSP Martin Whitfield. Uh, thanks all. Stephen Kerr, you, you win the Mars bar for looking the, the most vigorously disquieted during Patrick Harvey's uh, co- comments. What, what, what do you make of this this? This, this agreement between the Greens and the SNP, and what do you make of its potential impact on the economy? Well, the last thing that I need, Brian, is a Mars bar. I'm trying to give up Mars bars, but thank yeah. you for thank you for offering me any sort of recognition. In, really in, these, in these modern days, it's it's a digital Mars bar. So, oh, so digital. Yeah. I think probably the calorie count in a digital Mars bar is it's in zero. line with my dietary requirements. Um, what do you make of the deal? I, I shake my head at the stuff comment from Patrick. Stuff. That's what the economy is. It's just stuff. Well, it's not Patrick. It's people's jobs. It's people's incomes. It's livelihoods. It's tax. It's it's business creation and business uh, scale-up. Things that will add to the commonwealth of the people of Scotland and for them to be dismissed as stuff. It shows exactly where the, where the, where the, where the Greens and the SNP are heading in terms of their view. I think it shows that you weren't really listening to what I was I saying. Was I was I saying was... that's the simplistic critique of economic growth as GDP. Even and what I heard was you describe our economy as just a bunch of stuff. Well, I think people will be concerned about that. And I shudder at the news that Alistair Grant brought us, that one of the green MSPs is going to be responsible for transport. Well, that's, that's the death knell to every bit of infrastructure investment that's badly needed in Scotland. 
in order to grow our economy, increase our productivity, things like investment in roads, etc., and energy. Well, this is the so, so, so on the economy, the Scottish Greens are the party, the only party maybe in Britain that wants to shrink the economy, wants us to scale back the economy, wants to put the economy into permanent recession. And on energy, they're not interested in net zero. They want zero. They want no emissions. And what they're not prepared to be is pragmatic about any of this stuff. And so in energy terms, in energy terms, they want to shut down, they want to shut down the oil and gas sector. That's 110,000 jobs directly employed in the oil and gas sector. You can hang on a second, very briefly, Patrick, and then I'm keen to bring in the other so that it isn't just an interrogation in one one, one minute. Stephen is is asking me to be pragmatic. One of the very practical things we want to do on energy is double the onshore wind capacity. Will his party help us to achieve that, or will they do what they did before and pull the rug from under uh, the most efficient and most cost-effective way of generating renewable electricity? Will you help us double that? Hold that thought. The others are all very, very, have been all very patient. Alec Cole Hamilton, first of all, what, what do you make of this, this agreement and the impact upon the economy, the impact on Scotland? Well, Brian, I think reading it, it seems like pretty thin gruel for the Green Party. I, I congratulate Patrick on his elevation to ministerial office, but I rather think that it will leave some of his members scratching their head as to what's really in it for their party. And and let's remember, the centrepiece of this agreement is not the climate emergency. It is another tilt at a divisive second independence referendum, um, which inexplicably comes with the Greens. I I don't understand what what it is about the Green Party and nationalism. I think that if you want to fight climate change, you need to do it across borders and forge partnerships. And as for GDP and growth, growth is not something to be frightened of. Growth drives progress. It drives innovation. And innovation is the key to fighting the climate emergency. Cousin uh, is a a professor at Oxford who's working in geoengineering to to look at ways that we can extract carbon from the atmosphere, but also about how we innovatively drive down our reliance on fossil fuels. So so, so all of these things require investment, which comes from growth. And I I don't think we should be scared of a healthy GDP. Let's bring in in Martin Whitfield and then Cockab Stewart. Martin, the, the, the deal and the impact on Scotland's economy. Again, to echo something that Alex has said, and to take it slightly further, I'm not sure what we'll see particularly different. Um, We've seen in the past uh, sessions where the Greens have run around and screamed and shouted and then supported the budget. I was disappointed, I have to say, um, that the agreement didn't discuss um, our drug deaths, the alcohol deaths, and the health emergency that we're, we're facing. Um, I, you know, I have I have long, long um, supported the the talks and um, work that the Green Party have done, particularly with regard to drug deaths. And I think it's disappointing not to have seen that carried forward. And I do wonder, you know, with all respect, Patrick, whether your membership and it is for your membership, obviously, whether they will be really happy about this agreement and whether we will actually see any genuine change in holding to account. Once you are in government, um, where responsibility will also rest with you. Learn the view of the party, of course, on, on Saturday. And then if, if, if it passes that hurdle, there'll be, one presumes, a, a motion by the First Minister and, and um, uh, uh, votes on, on the, the, the two new ministers who will be part of a, a wider government and will also be taking um, the, the wider ministerial responsibility. Pokab Stewart, you, you've been very patient indeed. How do you think this works from an SNP perspective? What's the gain? It, it gets you over the line presumably for a majority, but I don't see it makes any difference at all on, on independence because the Greens were going to vote for it anyway. So what, what's, what's the gain? What's in it for the SNP? Uh, well, Brian, thanks very much. Um, it's great to be here. And as a newly elected MSP, maybe I can sort of like give a view from the outside, not having been elected before. Uh, so it's an interesting arena, this. Um, and I was just going to say, people could maybe not speak over each other because I can't hear. I'm losing the thread of it myself. Um, So I'll try not to do that. Um, With regards to the the, uh, Green Cooperation Agreement, um, I'm really excited by that because, you know, I've I've sort of like watched from the outside the way that politics has been conducted and the entrenched views that can happen. Um, And I'm not sure that the public sees that as entirely constructive. So in order for us to move forward and to be able to uh, cooperate on certain issues in order to move bills or legislation or 
you know, the vision of the country forward in a more consensual way and a collegiate way, I think that that's very helpful. It, it could be said, Kokab, it could be said it does precisely the opposite. That at the present moment, you have a parliament with, with, of, of, of all the talents and, and all the airts. And, and, and for something to get through uh, as a bill, it has to command support across a broad range of parties, whereas now, and I've looked at the details of it, uh, for, for bills, legislation, and also amendments in, in committee, the, the two parties, the SNP and the Greens, are going to vote together. And that cuts out everybody else. It cuts out ideas from the Conservatives, the Liberal Democrats and Labour. It doesn't cut out the scrutiny at all. And remember, the SNP and the Greens are very distinct parties. The cooperation agreement clearly allows for the distinct nature of our parties. Whilst we uh, will try and reach consensus and have agreement on certain things, um, I have no doubt whatsoever that the robust nature of the debates that already happen in the chamber will continue to happen. Yeah, the, 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 um, the robust debates will happen but the Conservatives, Labour and the Liberal Democrats will always lose because now there is a predetermined SNP Green majority. And it's not just on the big um, uh, policy issues. It's on the, the detail of legislation and on amendments to legislation. There's been a whole pile of amendments in the past Parliament that were got through by opposition parties. Yeah, but Brian, I think you're coming from the old sort of like view of the fact that no matter what somebody says, people are going to stick to party lines and things. From what I can see, um, people are willing to consider amendments and there appears to be a lot of negotiations and things that go on. So that consensus can happen before. It doesn't have to be as adversarial as it is. OK, I, 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 I've got a hand raised and it's Alec Cole Hamilton. I've got a hand raised after that, Stephen Kerr and then Patrick. Alec Cole Hamilton, then Stephen, then Patrick, please. Yes, uh, Brian, I'm afraid that you're absolutely right. Um, the legislation will now go through unamended and untested. I mean, the Scottish Parliament was designed as a unicameral legislature. What does that mean? Well, it's only one chamber. It doesn't have a revising chamber like a Senate or the House of Lords uh, uh, south of the border. Um, it was always felt that the committees would be the revising chamber. And we saw from the majority term of administration under the SNP that legislation just went through on the nod. There's this nice, pleasant fiction that Corkab is talking about that we will consider every amendment on its merits is hogwash. That doesn't happen. This is a controlling, commanding administration which likes to have its way. And if it's not its idea, it won't it won't countenance change. So, so I think this points to a, a, a problem in the structure of the Scottish Parliament and arguably a need for reform. Okay. Uh, who, uh, so I've got Stephen Kerr next and then to Patrick. Yeah, Stephen. Yeah, I, I'm going to come in on what Alex has just said. This is actually going to show up the weaknesses of the Scottish Parliament in terms of its ability to hold uh, the, the executive to account. This is not a new phenomenon. It was very evident in the last session that that was the case. Um, I'd also like to say there are really serious implications for the operation of Parliament in terms of what happens in the yeah. chamber as well. So, for example, at the moment, uh, the Greens have got a preferential place every week in FMQs. Well, mm. you can't be in the government and the opposition. And I really want to knock on the head this idea that this is not a coalition. This is a coalition. That's exactly what it is. And no matter how much Nicola Sturgeon tries to pretend that with her higher intellect, she sh we should all understand what she's talking about. Remember that line from the summer? Well, let, let me say this. I perfectly understand, as do the people of Scotland, this is a coalition between the SNP and the Greens. And therefore, the Greens cannot be in government and in opposition at the same time. Therefore, they must lose preferential treatment. They must lose preferential speaking slots and debates. And this is a test for the vibrancy of our parliament as uh, a place where the executive is tested uh, and held, to, held up to scrutiny. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few uh, days and weeks. Thanks, Stephen. Patrick, quite a lot to, to absorb there. How about all of that? Yeah, Stephen, Stephen knows very well that we've never had preferential treatment. We're, we're treated uh, equally as, as all uh, political parties are. And these decisions are for the presiding officer. The presiding officer will, will continue. Forgive me, will you still be able to pose questions to the first minister, even though you'll be in her government? That will be for the presiding officer to decide. And even SNP backbenchers do get to ask questions at first minister's question Not time. Ministers. From, from time to time. Not, Not ministers. ministers, no. Not ministers. Uh, but SNP members do get the chance to ask questions of the First Minister and of other ministers. The wider point that I would like to deal with is, and it, it is a little odd to hear this critique coming from uh, Conservative and Lib Dem colleagues, 
uh, this idea that a single party majority is outrageous when they worked together to form a single party majority at Westminster not so long ago. That was and, subject uh, to the revising chamber of the House of Lords. And Alex Cole Hamilton's party was in a single party, was in a two party majority uh, for eight years in the first two sessions. It was a coalition, Parliament. Patrick. Look, all the way along, whatever the format of the government, the willingness of ministers to engage across party has been varied. When there was a coalition, some ministers were good at it and some ministers just batted off any idea that came from the opposition parties. When the SNP were in power, some of their ministers have been good at it and some of them have been bad at it. I think it's always good for ministers to have an open mind, to work across party lines where they can. And if I have the opportunity to serve in that capacity, that's the way I'll work, absolutely. And it would be a breath of fresh air from the last six months before the election, which were so hostile, so toxic, so polarised and riven with the kind of uh, yeah, the, the attitude of online conspiracy theorists brought into the chamber in this in the tone of the debate that some people were bringing. That was so ugly. What we want to see is political parties working working together to make life better for people in Scotland. Thanks for that, Stephen Kerr, and then Martin Whitfield. Stephen, then Martin. Please. So the examples that Patrick cites are coalitions. So I think we've had tacit acceptance from Patrick just now that what we've got this agreement is a coalition government. And therefore, that does change the shape of the preferential speaking rights uh, in the chamber. And uh, he shakes his head, but he just he just compared this current scenario with the uh, 2010 Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition government at Westminster. I compared that scenario with what you'd been saying. And nobody gets preferential treatment. You just know that's not true. In debates, you get winding, opening and winding up speeches. As, as do all the other parties. There's nothing preferential. about Martin Whitfield. Let the debate abate slightly so that everyone can be heard. I think the difficulty that you have, Patrick, is that you are mixing up two aspects of the Scottish Parliament. Firstly, in the sense that the de Hoyt system dictates the speeches and the breakdown of speeches across parties. Um, but then you are convalescing that with the fact that you are going into government. And when we come to debates and we have openings by ministers and closing by ministers, then within that format, your party is sitting on the side of government. You talk about reaching out across the chamber. And I think when you look at some of the work that happens in committee stage, that's exactly what does happen. And that's where the reaching out, the cross-party groups I was talking about this morning at a conference are another fine example of it. But I think it is very dangerous to hold up what the expectation is that everything will be agreed across the whole chamber because that won't happen. And the rules that sit to dictate who talks, when they talk, who can question, who can hold to account are there to facilitate the very founding principles of the Scottish Parliament. And that is to hold the government to account. I haven't set out any expectation there. Those those issues will be for the PO to decide, as you know. But I would hope, Martin, that you see some real positive opportunities in at least some of this. We're going to see a national system of rent controls. Labour has been calling that, calling for that at UK level for a number of years. The SNP have agreed to do this because Greens have been in the room making the case for it. I've been personally making the case for at least three or four housing ministers worth. Uh, of engagement. And now finally, we've got the opportunity to do that. And if I have the opportunity to reach out to Labour colleagues and say, you know, how do you want to help shape this? I hope that'll be a positive engagement and a constructive one. Thanks for that. I'm going to bring in Alistair Grant. Alistair, I want to take us to, down a slightly different area, but an area, big, big, big in the things that developed this week. We had an uh, announcement about a COVID inquiry and we had an announcement about proposals for the NHS. So you've got, you've got COVID and you've got post-COVID NHS. Remind us of what's been happening in, in, on those fronts, please. Yeah, so earlier this week, as you said, we had this announcement that Scotland would begin its own uh, judge-led public inquiry into, uh, into the coronavirus pandemic by the end of the year. It will basically aim to kind of scrutinise the decisions that were taken over the course of the pandemic. I think, you know, the First Minister said it will look at all the aspects and the kind of devolved handling of it, including uh, the kind of situation in care homes. It's obviously a, a kind of an issue of huge controversy and affected yeah. families up and down the country. Um, of course, one of the things we don't know is how long an inquiry would last. Yeah. Uh, these things do tend to take quite a long time. And I think given the sheer volume of information surrounding the coronavirus crisis, I think the expectation is that it would take quite a while. 
Well, it's nevertheless, you know, it's a welcome development for campaigners. I think some of them are actually quite emotional on hearing yeah. the news. Um, they understandably want answers both for themselves and for, for other people. Yeah. Um, and we've also got Boris Johnson, who's committed to holding a kind of UK-wide or UK public inquiry. And the initial thought had been perhaps that the Scottish element might have gone into that wider UK one on the grounds that so much of the effort was was pan-UK and so, so many of the issues were, were affected by cross-border decisions. Yeah, I think it's not quite clear, you know, how the Scottish inquiry might feed into this, although Nicola Sturgeon was obviously saying that it's important there's not duplication or overlap. And, you know, at the same time as all this, you know, you're touching it yourself there, we've got issues with the health service, we've got, I mean, essentially it's kind of, I suppose earlier this week again, we had the Scottish government publishing its £1 billion plan to address the NHS backlog, uh, kind of promising to increase healthcare capacity, reforms across doctors, dentists, hospital services. Let's bring in... Let's bring in Cockab Stewart. Cockab, the we have we have the COVID inquiry, but I'm, I'm in in some ways that that'll take its own shape. I mean, Harold Wilson said these inquiries tended to take minutes and waste years, but we we shall we shall see with this one. And I understand entirely, understand entirely the anxiety of the relatives to 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 get to the core. What about that announcement on on health spending? I mean, you, in 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 some ways, I, I was most struck by not the additional money because the health the health service will always absorb. Money available. It, it's it was it was linked to reform, wasn't it? To a different way of trying to bring about healthcare. Coca, would you t- take us through that, please? Yeah, um, sort of like yeah, talking about the reform of it, I think is very important. Uh, um, not to underestimate the impact of the money and the yeah. the billion pound commitment to that. Um, but looking at how we deliver services, I think like anything else, COVID exposed uh, lots of things and the backlog in operations. Um, you know, just getting access to GPs, uh, there's there's loads of different ways, you know, cancer care, um, I could list lots of things I won't, but the general principle of it, I suppose, is that the system does need reform. Um, we need to look at how we best use our staffing, how we recruit those staff, how we maintain them and retain them as well. Um, looking at the mental and health and well-being, the mental health services, I suppose, yes. that's as yes. well the big sort of like investment in that which I really welcome so we've got the medical stuff that we're you know the the bones and the the blood and everything but also looking at uh mental health services and I've met with lots of sort of like uh agencies that are involved in that and they're very welcoming of that so yeah will will we see a real change Coca? will we see a real change because I mean there's been so many new initiatives for the NHS you know you know different structures additional funding you know again and again and again and it doesn't seem to to change all that that much in terms of the way the service is delivered yeah I can see why you might say that I'm sort of like learning as I'm coming in that you know from the outside it's like why is change not happening and then when you get onto the inside of it and you see yeah you can understand a bit why because like so many of the different services are connected with each other um so whilst you've got the nhs you can't you know that's health policy but that has a knock-on effect on social policy it has a knock-on effect on economic policy as well um housing you know all these things are interconnected so i'm glad that the inquiry is going to take its time over it um and to explore all the issues that you know, are, are nuanced, they're quite in-depth, um, and I hope it takes a human rights-based approach to it as well. Um, so not just looking at the numbers, um, but also looking at the impacts on particularly, like, you know, marginalised, underrepresented groups. I've had representations from many groups, um, you know, with uh, sort of uh, their own unique set of medical circumstances, but also from ethnic minorities, from children, from homeless, po- you know, from all that point of view. I do hope that I am optimistic that change will come. Forgive me, just briefly on the inquiry. Is it going to, is it likely to produce some awkward moments for Scottish ministers? Well, I don't think that the Scottish, Min- uh, you know, um, I watched it, you know, from sort of like home while we were uh during that period um and i don't think the ministers were ever saying we've got this right in fact as you know i heard nicola sturgeon saying it many times gene freeman quite famously saying called it wrong on on the the transfer to care homes yeah and i think that you know um you have to be able to own up to uh errors that were made you know and i can't 
I can't make any comment on that because I wasn't in the situation, didn't have access to all the information. However, I think that, you know, if people reflect on it um, and the information is changing all the time, I bear that all in mind. But is it so bad to have uncomfortable moments where you can look back and think, you know, could have done it differently, could have done it better, and that equips us better for the future? And that's a bit more grown up than being frightened to make mistakes and getting a plan in from oppositions. Thanks, Cockab. Let's let's bring in some other Stephen Kerr, the, the the COVID inquiry, and above all, perhaps the, the the new direction that is being mapped out for the NHS. Are you convinced? Well, first of all, um, I'm delighted to be able to tell you that so much of what uh, Cockab said, I can agree with. Um, so I'm following Patrick's uh, uh, encouragement there that we can work together on things that are of absolute vital uh, national interest, and nothing is more of more pressing national interest right now than the remobilization and recovery of the NHS. Um, so I'm glad that you know we've been pressing as Scottish Conservatives for a COVID inquiry. There is a consultation on this. Now there needs to be action on it. Uh, the commitment is that the inquiry should be set up before the end of the year. And that's very much what we hope will happen. Um, but I have to say on the NHS pamphlet that was produced, I'm afraid uh, 100 days ago, or plus 100 days, because actually in actual fact the SNP ability to count to 100 was uh, called into question in the timing of the 100 days, uh, which is another issue. But um, to produce after 100 days by the SNP's reckoning, a 28-page document with lots of white space and lots of graphics is thin gruel. I think that was a phrase that you used, used earlier. On These such other phrases were used. Market, Nicholas Sturgeon said your complaints were ludicrous. Well, of course, everything that anyone ever says to the First Minister that she disagrees with ends up being described by her as ludicrous, which is the antithesis of the working together and listening to each other that Patrick was espousing earlier. So good luck, Patrick, with disagreeing with the First Minister when you're a minister in the government. But this should have been, after 100 days, something that would have had a lot more detail because this is absolutely a critical issue. Now, the Cabinet Secretary for Health and Social Care himself said, and I asked him about this in the chamber in the debate that we had on the NHS recovery plan, which we were still waiting to see. And now we've seen it's 28 pages, as I say. And he said that it would take many years for the NHS to recover. Now, this has got to be put into the context of the NHS, the uh, SNP's commitment at the election that in the first year of government, that they would restore the NHS not only to its capacity levels pre-COVID, mm -hmm. but plus 10%. So straight away, the 100 days has produced a broken promise in, in, in respect to this particular uh, uh, commitment. And there are, so many, there are so many things that we need to work together on, and nothing is more important than uh, this. I mean, we are facing this backlog issue that COCAB mentioned is a huge issue. And in, no, in, 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 in one specific area I want to mention, because I feel very strongly about this, is mental health, yeah. where people in Fourth Valley which is part of my central Scotland constituency, can be waiting for two years. Young people can be waiting for two years to see mental health specialists. And that is shameful. What we are dealing with now is a lack of workforce planning and a lack of planning full stop from the SNP government going back many years. In fact, going back to Nicola Sturgeon's time as the Cabinet Secretary for Health. And what we need to do now is get into the nitty gritty and develop a detailed plan that will actually deliver on the headlines that we got in the 28-page pamphlet. Okay. But let's bring in Martin Whitfield, then Alex, and then Patrick, you've been very patient for a while. Ma uh, just briefly, if you would, on, on, on the, the health issue and the COVID issue. Martin. Mm. I mean, certainly, certainly dealing with the health issue, you know, the, the publication was as underwhelming as it was overdue. But what I did find disappointing was the complete lack of explanation to existing staff about how they are going to be supported back. They have worked. They were applauded. They have saved so many people. And now they've just been abandoned. There is talk of additional staff coming in. But training for doctors, six years. Training for nurses, four and a half to five years. Training for support staff. We've talked about the mental health and the importance of it. As a school teacher, I witnessed pupils waiting 18 months and plus moving from primary school to high school before they were seen by CAMS. The training for the specialist staff that that's needed isn't even going to be complete by the end of this parliament. 
And we have let down the NHS. And by doing that, the Scottish government, the SNP, have let down the people of Scotland. This was a massive opportunity and it's been missed. And we have now sitting on top of that the proposals for the COVID inquiry. And, you know, I will put my personal interest hat on in this. And they're asking for comments on the areas that are going to be looked at. And one of those is education. And we look at the debacle that has been in education. We look at the people who will remember this COVID outbreak for longer than certainly anyone on this podcast, but for the longest for people in society. And they will look back. And I fear they will do so with disappointment at the politicians and the but way Martin, that they wasn't a uniquely difficult set of circumstances that, that would, would have been challenging absolutely it was a deeply difficult no absolutely it was a deeply difficult set of circumstances it still is it still is for people who are shielding at home it still is for people who aren't sure where their employment is going but that doesn't mean that politicians can duck and dive and just go i'm sorry i've learned about it there are families who are grieving and will grieve for the rest of their lives and it is wrong it is fundamentally wrong for politicians to try and step away from their responsibility okay. in making decisions, in taking decisions and listening to the advice that was available at the time and then not acting on it. Got that. Bring in Alec Colhamilton, then bring in Patrick Harvey. Alec Colhamilton. I just want to address one particular thing that Martin said about child mental health. And, and it is a very welcome uh, recognition of the problems in child mental health services and um, that the SNP has promised a clear those waiting lists by 2023, but that cannot mean parking young people on medication or, or offering them inferior interventions online when actually a lot of these young people need access to talking therapy by okay. that, That's a, a red line for us. Um, in terms of the recovery plan itself, again, I, very underwhelming. I, I think I was more concerned with what it didn't mention. It didn't mention anything about the NHS treatment time guarantee. We've got patients who, even before the pandemic, were clutching letters they, saying they'd be seen in 12 weeks when there wasn't a hope of them seeing in 50. And that is not addressed by this. Now, it was convenient for the SNP to use the, the pandemic to explain why operations are being delayed or cancelled. They were terrible before we'd even heard of coronavirus. So we need a catch-up plan to, to get back to the races on, on at least being honest with people about you, when they'll be seen. You, you, and then said, secondly... You said convenient. Are you saying they used it as an excuse? No, no, no. I, I, I misspoke there. I don't mean to suggest that it was a, a helpful thing. It wasn't helpful to anybody. I wouldn't in any way imply that. No, indeed. No, you're right to pull me up on that. I think language matters here, here Brian, and I wouldn't want to do that. Um, and then the second thing is long COVID. 100,000 Scots, maybe more, could be suffering this devastating condition, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, which we have very little in the way of provision for. It's actually, I, I think you'd be better off if you're suffering from long COVID in Scotland by moving to England, where they actually have dedicated long COVID clinics, mm -hmm. they have peripatetic long COVID nurses, um, and a, a treatment pathway that we just don't have here. We, we have a couple of online uh, pages, a, a, a helpline, and whatever your GP can do for you. This is possibly one of the most disabling events since the First World War, and we haven't woken up to that. It doesn't feature anywhere in the recovery plan. And the final thing I'll say is this about the inquiry. Very you would. Yeah, um, we just need to let this go where the evidence takes it. There should be no uh, parameters imposed by Parliament which stop it getting to the truth. Pa Patrick, what, what, what's your take on the, on the inquiry and the, and the, the future plans for the, for the NHS? It's not going to be under your direct ministerial remit, but what, what, what's your take? Well, I mean, this discussion started with with Cockab and Stephen saying how much they agreed, and and now it sounds like we're violently agreeing with each other. That that that, that the agreement is expressed with the same kind of animosity as as our worst disagreements. Sometimes there there is a huge amount of common ground here, uh, not least because we've all been personally affected, just as everybody else in the country has. Politicians aren't immune from that. Uh, I remember right at the start of this, uh, Nicola Sturgeon standing up and saying, I will get things wrong. We as a government will yeah. get things wrong. And I, I honestly would defy any of us here or anybody else in politics to say uh, that we could have gone into this and never made a mistake. So undoubtedly, mistakes will have been made. I think there's the, the problem with the inquiry. And yeah, there, there are longer standing issues before COVID, absolutely. And one of the things that the inquiry is likely to find uh, is that most governments around the world didn't do pandemic preparedness planning properly, uh, didn't learn the lessons of, of some of the, uh, the, the, the countries in the uh, you know, Asian countries that had deal, dealt with Mars and SARS and so on and had learned from that. 
we didn't apply that properly. I and mean, all of our pandemic planning was based on flu variants. Uh, so the, there are some long-standing mistakes here. But I, I think part of the problem with the inquiry is that it's it's going to need to both be big, bold, uh, and, and looking at things in a very deep way, but also drilling down to very narrow specifics. It's going to need to be both looking at the Scottish government uh, and the domestic context here, but also at the wider uh, context within the UK. It's going to both need to take years to do long, detailed work, and it's going to need to report soon on issues that we'll be legislating on soon, like the care system. So it's going to need to do all of those things. I suspect it's going to have to take a phased approach uh, and focus in narrowly on some specifics, first of all, and not be expected to do everything all at once, uh, because I think that would be an impossible task. Will will you be supportive, even though it's not in your ministerial remit and there are exclusions, et cetera, and exceptions? It, it, should it go through and should you become a minister, will you feel the need to be supportive of those ministers who may face criticism for their, their, for their actions as a result of the inquiry? Will you feel the need to support the, the health programme generally or will you be reserving the right to, to be critical where, where, where you feel it's, uh, it's appropriate? Well, there's a great deal in health policy that isn't in the shared programme. Our shared programme does include a lot of investment in mental health, for example, but it doesn't cover the whole of health. Uh, so on those issues, we'll continue to work together in good faith and try to reach agreement. And only if we absolutely can't, we'll add those issues to the excluded uh, issues within our agreement and, and ultimately agree to differ. I think that's a reasonable way for, for political parties to, to operate uh, in, a, in a, a constructive way, in good faith, but ultimately disagreeing where they have to. But, you know, supporting ministers uh, who have been found to, you know, they've, they've made some, some errors of judgment or they've made mistakes, if that's what an inquiry finds, supporting a minister in that case may mean supporting them to learn and to and to draw on that as experience to become better, or you know, if there's if there's a uh, an issue of you know direct incompetence or of breaching the ministerial code, uh, they may frankly need to be supported into a, a different role in, in public life. That will be a, a judgment for the first minister whether someone has breached the ministerial code and not done their job properly. But that's always the case, uh, and you know the. The, the idea that, that this ceases to be uh, uh, about learning lessons and trying to improve ourselves and becomes just a, a, a blame game, I think that would be, uh, you know, serving the interests of, of the party political game, but I don't think it would be serving the interests of the public. Well, let's talk about the interest of Scotland for the future. I'm going to bring in Alistair Grant here. Alistair, one thing that's mentioned right at the top of the, although I'm slightly sceptical about its impact, but mentioned right at the top of the, of the, the agreement between the SNP and the Greens, is that they want a referendum and they want it within this parliament. Explain that to us, if you would, Alison. Yeah, so I think this will be one of the things that certainly journalists will be looking out for when Nicola Sturgeon sets out her programme for government in the coming in the coming days or weeks. Uh, I think all eyes will be on what she says about independence, uh, any legislation on a second referendum. So obviously, as you said, the SNP Green deal pledges to secure that referendum after the COVID crisis, although it doesn't really define uh, what, what it means by after the crisis. Yeah. Uh, it says it will be in the current parliamentary term, current parliamentary session, uh, and that if the, the crisis had passed, the intention would be to hold it within the first half. So that's kind of before 2024. And yeah. In the background, we have also got this, these kind of same unanswered problems and questions that we're all kind of very used to now uh, in terms of what would happen if the UK government says no. And if they do say no, and Nicola Sturgeon it pushes on regardless whether this is going to end up in a constitutional battle in the courts and what would happen after that, it's hard to tell where this is going to go. Stephen Kerr, would the is it your belief that the UK Conservative government will continue to say no to the idea of there being IndyRef2? I think the, the Scottish Conservatives and I think the UK government will continue to focus relentlessly on recovering from COVID and the pandemic, Brian. I mean, at the end of the day, we've had this very long and passionate discussion about the NHS. I mentioned the economy at the start of the podcast. We've not gotten to schools yet, but I know that's something that COCAB and I feel very passionately about. The whole scenario of where Scotland now sits and where we want our country to be means that we cannot be diverted into divisive referendums. And even the debate about a divisive referendum will be divisive. And frankly, you know, I actually do agree with some of the stuff that was said earlier. I really do, Patrick, about us working together. I want us all to work together. Uh, in order to better the lives and life prospects of the people of Scotland. 
I also want us uh, to work very closely with the UK government on things and not make constitutional grandstanding part of the basis for whether the Scottish government decides to work with the UK government, for example, on the connectivity review and so forth. Um, Scots don't rate, Brian, this issue as something that should be commanding the time and the energy of MSPs and indeed MPs. They want us focusing on the things that are bread and butter issues that matter to them, like the future of our country is defined by the education system that we need to restore to being fit for purpose after the pandemic. And in creating an economy where there are good jobs, high paying jobs, where our people are, are educated and, and, and trained and capable of, of filling those jobs and driving us forward as a country, because Scotland strategically and uniquely, I think, can play a massive role in delivering net zero for the, for, for the UK. We've got so many opportunities. We've been blessed with this wonderful country and all of its assets. We need to work together to make sure that we do the best we can for our own country, but also for the planet. And that's far more important than in India. Uh, let's, let's bring in Kokab Stewart. Kokab, presumably you feel that this wonderful country, as Stephen describes it, I'm sure you would share the description, you feel that this wonderful country would be better served by an, a referendum lead, leading to, to, to independence. Um, I do. However, I also agree with Stephen that um, at this uh, moment in time, uh, the COVID recovery is essential. That's the most important thing. There's, there is no uh, sort of like, you know, debate about that. Um, whether you're an independent supporter or not, COVID doesn't see the difference in that. So that is the priority. Um, however, uh, you know, I don't think that it is as divisive as Stephen is making out because uh, you can do both. You know, what from what I can see, there are plenty of sort of like ministers. There's, you know, 129. There's loads of folk there. And, you know, the population out there as well. Um, there is optimism about coming out of this pandemic and sort of like, you know, building uh, better, recovering better, learning from where the cracks were and not just papering over them, but actually sort of like having a, a renewed vision, you know, for our country. And for me, I do think that's independent. So I think we can do both. What, 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 what if? What if voted in the country, Stephen was saying that there isn't the appetite for it. There is. In okay. May, people voted for the SNP. They voted for the Greens. You know, those are two, you know, parties that have got independence. They're right on the table. What What if, okay, well, I'll, bring it, I'll bring in the others in a second. Kogab, what, what if, you, you say they shouldn't, you say they should be holding a referendum. But what if the Conservative government, and I stress that the Constitution is reserved to the UK Parliament and the UK government, what if the, the, the Conservative government continue to say no? Where, where do you go from there? Where do you take it? Well, so, well that exposes uh, quite uh, sort of like obviously the uh, paternalistic attitude that's taken by the UK government, that we still think that you know, they're able to say no. How can they say no? We have sort of like, you know, if this agreement, this cooperation uh, agreement um, is agreed, goes forward and it works in the consensual way that we're working, uh, you know, the, that situation becomes impossible to sustain. So let Boris say that. Let him say that. Uh, Alec Cole Hamilton, furious shaking of head from the, the leader of the Scottish Lib Dems. It, it's not impossible to sustain. It's impossible to stand up. I mean, if you look at the arithmetic of what actually happened in the election, um, fewer than 50% of the voting public actually backed parties that were in favour of independence. Not only that, but Nicola Sturgeon recognised that the consistent drive towards a, a mandate for a second referendum was harming her during the polls and pivoted three weeks out to who do you trust to lead Scotland through the pandemic. That mandate is tainted. And I know many people who voted SNP because they didn't want to change a wartime cabinet as they saw it, a crisis government. They didn't want to do that at this stage. They weren't endorsing her plans for separation. And we need that like a hole in the head. Cap says, oh, there's plenty of this. We can do other things as well. Well, no, it's starved our policy of oxygen for the last 10 years. It's why there are warning lights flashing across the dashboard of public policy in Scotland. And why? Because ministerial attention and interest has been focused on one thing, and one thing alone. And the final thing I will say is this. Yeah. There was a poll of Green Party supporters before the election, which actually shows that more than half of Green Party supporters do not support it. I will be looking aghast at this deal 
and be thinking, what on earth has this got to do with tackling climate change? That should have been the centrepiece of a coalition deal, not breaking up the U- United Kingdom. They'll have a chance to vote a gas on Saturday. Let's bring in Patrick Harvey. Patrick Harvey, are you confident that, that a referendum will take place uh, on independence during the, the lifetime of the present parliament, present Scottish parliament? Well, uh, first of all, I think Alex is, is quoting from an Ashcroft poll, which we all know was a heavily skewed sample and has been uh, blown out of the water in terms of uh, its, its credibility. But the, uh, the, 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 the idea that the UK government simply says, no, you can't, as their only answer to the aspirations of the people of Scotland to make a decision about their future, the idea that no, you can't is the only answer, I, I, just, don't think it, I just don't think it stands up. And, you know, the, the other point that we've heard, and, and Stephen made this point, and I'm sure he made this point in, in good faith. Uh, I, I don't d- doubt his, his sincerity of saying it. Why can't we just work together with the UK government? Well, the UK government is now routinely legislating in devolved areas, which are none of their business, without the consent of the Scottish Parliament. It's passed legislation to undermine the existing powers of the Scottish Parliament. So we no longer even have the devolution settlement we voted for more than 20 years ago. Uh, And they've taken the Scottish Parliament's legislation to court to try and strike it down just for implementing things uh, like children's rights, which are wholly devolved. So the idea, the idea that we can work together with them when they have refused point blank to put meaningful intergovernmental machinery in place, I just don't think it's credible. Do you, do, Patrick, same question, hold on a second, same question to Patrick that I put to Cookham Stewart. If the UK government continue to say no because they say it is not in the interest of, of the Scottish people and, and the governance of the United Kingdom, what do you do? Well, there are different legal opinions that have been expressed about whether uh, a referendum bill could be passed without a Section 30 order. Uh, you know, I, I don't want that to get to court. I don't want that to get to court. It could do it in time. I don't want that to happen because the way it should happen is by just respecting the democratic uh, process. If the if this issue can be resolved democratically, then how can it be resolved democratically when the people of Scotland have voted for pro-independence majorities in both their parliaments repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly? What on earth are they supposed to do in order to have this resolved democratically? We follow up, Patrick. Do you, do you I mean, you, you, you were voting previously for a referendum anyway, but if you are in government, do you believe it makes it more likely that there is more impetus behind? Does it make a difference? To the, to the case for independence referendum, does it does it strengthen it in your view? I certainly hope it does. And, you know, Scottish political landscape has shown itself capable of innovation, uh, new ways of governing uh, on several occasions. This is another innovation. And I, I hope that stability that it will create uh, reinforces the case for, for the democratic uh, will of Scotland to be respected. But that case is already there with the pro-independence majority in Parliament. Uh, and uh, simply, uh, simply, simply put, no Democrat can really resist it. Okay, I'll bring in Martin Whitfield and then the others. Ma- Ma- Martin, Whitfield. I was just really going to come on and to to comment in respect of something is that Patrick has said, and sort of invite the hope that within the next well month, six weeks, the Supreme Court will hand down its decision on the UNCR implementation bill. Will the Greens fight um, to make sure that we've got legislative space so that any Parts that are struck out um, can be redrafted, inserted, so it can become law as fast as possible. Very, very brief answer, Patrick, and then back to Mark Whitfield on the wider referendum. I very much hope that won't be necessary, but if it is necessary, then yes, all political parties should work together to find the most effective way of re- making sure that those rights are enshrined in domestic law. Thanks. Right, back to Martin. Where are we on a referendum? Where, where, where are we on the referendum? Mark, Mark and, Whitfield on the and, referendum. And, Quickly, with, 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 with regards to the referendum, I think when we look at the uh, NHS publication um, where they're saying quite categorically that treatment centres aren't even going to come online until the second half of this parliament, this parliament needs to concentrate on COVID recovery. We need to look after our young people. We need to look after those people in work. We need to look after our older people. And we need to look after the environment. We have the COP meeting coming up in weeks. Now is not the time. And with the greatest respect to Kaukab, and it is with absolute respect, I have yet to see this government deal with more than one thing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Alec, Alec Cole-Hamilton, you're, you're nodding there. Alec Cole-Hamilton. Uh, I think, well, that goes back to the warning lights that are flashing across the dashboard 
by public policy, whether that's the educational attainment gap, where it's the missed childcare, uh, sorry, the missed climate change targets, the um, the delays to the extension of funded childcare, the threadbare state of our police force, DRA reform. This government pushes back the issues that are hard and it focuses constantly, relentlessly towards the drive of separation. And this is harming our citizens. There is a muscle member, Brian, in the politics of Scotland where every single vote in every election is now about a mandate for a second referendum. It has become the alpha and the omega of political debate in Scotland. And we aren't getting on with the business of government. And I hope, I really hope that the people of this country start to see both of these parties for what they are, that this is the primary reason for their existence and and will vote them out. Stephen Kerr? Yeah, I, I have to say I agree with much of what I've just heard. I mean, I have never underestimated Patrick's uh, political skills, but my goodness, that was spinning like a spinning top on a sixpenny piece. All that stuff about how the Conservatives are legislating in devolved space and all the rest of it. And he knows full well why the UK government needed to take uh, the steps it did in respect to the legal advice that the Scottish government and the parliament had about legislating in areas that are actually reserved. You cannot legislate in a devolved parliament uh, for uh, the the behaviours, actions and and expectations of of UK ministers. But I'm a Democrat, absolutely a Democrat. I believe in in, in our democracy. And, and, And I'm going to be absolutely frank with you. I knock on a lot of doors even now. And I do not I do not have, have people telling me that this is the biggest issue in their lives. What they're talking to me about are the things that I listed earlier on. They care passionately about the future of their children. They care passionately about the NHS and the NHS workers. And we've heard some. Yeah, go on, Stephen, very briefly. No, no, but the, the reality is that, 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 the, that the, in the DNA of the SNP, in the DNA of the Scottish Greens, they are absolutely obsessed with that issue. It trumps, if I may use that word, it trumps okay. every other issue that the people of Scotland care if about. If you're a Democrat, they won the blasted election. Shouldn't they get their way in that regard? Uh, what they should be listening What the election result, Brian, says is election. the people of Scotland oh, want their politicians to work together to tackle the issues that arise because of uh, COVID. They Alec, want us working together thanks. to fix the things that matter thanks. to them. Alec, Alec Cole-Hamilton, you want a brief intervention and then co Cab Stewart. Alec, plus first, please. Thank you for bringing me back in. Yes, uh, both of these parties, Brian, are asking to, write, to vote in a blank check referendum. This is a referendum for which there are so many unanswered questions. It's like Brexit all over again. The Brexit perspectives were written on the back end of a bus. Independence is no different. Nobody will tell us who is going to pay the penalty. Nobody will tell us what currency will we use. Nobody tell us how long it will take us, if at all, that Scotland will take to get back into the European Union. The Sturgeon says all these issues we placed in a white paper at the time. But but we we were told that last time. The last the last white paper did not contain any ah. of these things. And what's more, if she did, and you know, I I would welcome sight of some of these answers because then we could debate them in open ground rather than waiting until we were in the teeth of a referendum campaign. And, and having people so confused and bamboozled by hundreds and hundreds of pages of white paper, they don't know what they're voting for. I think that's the true travesty of democracy in this discussion. Very, very briefly, Stephen Brian, 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 that'll about. be the white paper that said Scotland's economy will be built on oil and gas. That'll be the white paper that is now filed very firmly in any library under the fiction section. <laughs> Book up, Stuart. Book up, please. Stephen, you just said um, about uh, people for the fact that uh, they wanted the parties to work together. That's exactly what we are trying to demonstrate here. And yet you were complaining about the fact that that doesn't work for you either. So, you know, you, you kind of have it both ways and you're trying to have it both ways every time. Um, the the narrative of this sort of divisive, ripping apart, uh, all of this kind of talk, I have to say that, you know, out there, people don't see it that way at all. Um, they see Scotland pulling together to try and recover from this pandemic find Scottish sort of like solutions from our own perspective. We have a right to do that. We have a right to be recognised democratically to do that. You're a Democrat. You said you're a Democrat. So therefore, you know, to honour the democratic will of the people, that, you know, to me is is good. And Alex, I won't be taking any lectures from you about, you know, people not... uh, entirely voting for independence uh, just because they're voting for Green or for SNP or whatever. Um, You know, 
sort of like, I don't like to say, but, you know, the results for the election for your own party were, were not that healthy. So, you know, you need to sort of like take a reflective attitude on that tack that you're taking. I don't like to say, but here we go. That's the style. That's that, that. We're out of time. Out of time. Final one to Patrick Harvey. Is there going to be a referendum in this parliament? I was just really delighted to hear uh, Alex demanding more information and more urgency from the Scottish government on independence. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, mate, I'll do my best to G them along a bit. How's that? Please do. And then we can have an open debate Bang. about this and show what a, a ridiculous idea this is. Another podcast looms. I can feel it. Another podcast looms. Absolutely. Another podcast looms next week. Thank you very, very, very much uh, to Alistair Grant, to all the participants in the debate. That was absolutely superb. Remind everyone that that subscription, 20% off an annual subscription to all the, the, the many, many manifold uh, outpourings from, from the Herald. Use the code HERALDPOD2021 and you get a fifth off. Couldn't, can't say better than that. From me, Brian Taylor, to the new. This podcast was brought to you by The Herald. Take 20% off an annual subscription to The Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Just add HeraldPod2021 to your basket and get instant, unfiltered access to our website. And you can also get involved with the Brian Taylor podcast as well. Tune in on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube every Thursday afternoon to catch Brian and his panel chat live and ask your questions to the people across the political scene. 